A friend of mine who is an Episcopal priest likes to say that Trinitarian language, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, should be thought of as chapter titles for for a much longer book or novel, which is a nice way of saying that what's interesting about Trinitarian language is not the chapter title, not the, the superficial word that we first hear, but rather the more interesting and mysterious part that just like a novel or a book follows within the chapter itself. Trinity Sunday falls this day on Father's Day and Gay Pride Weekend, which is a fortuitous day if ever there was one. And it invites um, careful and imaginative reflection upon what it means to be a father and what it means to say that God is a father and how both lovely and complicated that language is. The trouble with father language for God is at least twofold, and the first is the most obvious. For those of us who had or have wonderful, wise, loving fathers, the language of the divine being like a father is quickly comforting and stirs the imagination. For those of us who did not, problems quickly entail because that very language does not bring quickly thoughts of comfort stirring the imagination. This problem was captured perfectly in one witty sentence by Mark Twain, who said once that in the beginning, God made man in his own image And man, being a gentleman, ever since then has been returning the favor. Meaning how often it is that we just simply project onto God just larger qualities of ourselves. Whether those are good qualities or perhaps potentially negative qualities, we just think of God as being bigger. And that's the danger of literalizing any language for the divine. The related problem that's especially, we're especially aware of um, for casting divinity as masculinity is how that one image has become so set in stone in the church's liturgy, our prayers, even our hymnody, to such a degree that we've neglected and even ignored the wider range of biblical and theological images for God especially those that are feminine in nature, God as mother, say. Which means perhaps the best chapter title for for this first chapter is creator, or the old English word maker. That's what the language is trying to get at, what it means to experience God as the source of all that we are all of our being. When we first moved here a couple of years ago, it was summer and we were taken on a hike to Berthoud Pass. It was August. It was the highest point that I'd ever been at in my entire life. It was so beautiful. It was also August and up at the top of the mountains there was snow on the ground, which for a southerner is a kind of miracle. And when we were up there, our our daughter, who was 16 at the time, I was closest to her physically, and and we got to the top and we were looking around, and she just whispered to herself, there has to be a God. 
There has to be a God. That's what the the creator-maker language is trying to get at. The ways in which we experience God, literally experience God, is the source of a world, the source of a cosmos that we never could have created, a source of a cosmos that, like the Rocky Mountains, seems to go on forever and ever and ever. Something beyond our wildest imagination, beyond our control. That's what this language is trying to do. And we don't have to go to a mountaintop in order to experience that. Just looking at the cosmos within ourselves can lead to this exact same experience. That underground river of memories and images that Jung called the unconscious. A world, a cosmos within ourselves that's as mysterious as anything in the heavens. The second chapter title is is Christ, of course. And it's that in Christ's life and death and resurrections, we encounter unconditional love. But I think the remarkable thing about Christ's life and these stories that we hear Sunday after Sunday in the Gospels is that Christ's story opens a lens onto our own stories. We don't fully realize who Christ is and the depth of that love unless we've realized it within our own stories. For example, there's no way to grasp the true mystery of resurrection if we don't begin to see the potential for resurrection that lies at the heart of every single human relationship. Our story is the continuation of Christ's story. So this chapter leads to countless numbers of chapters. It's the longest part of the book. There's this one verse in John's Gospel, and we rarely ever hear it appointed in the lectionary. I don't even think it's appointed in the lectionary. But it's this one verse at the end of John's Gospel, and this cathedral is named after this entire Gospel. But this one verse says that Jesus did a lot of other things. So many other things that if they were all written down, the world itself could not contain the amount of books that would have to be written. Which is John's image for Christ's story is inseparable from our own stories. And the novel, the autobiography, is really, really long and unending as our stories continue. The chapter entitled Spirit for me, is the shortest because it might be the one that's um, easiest to grasp. Every now and then, for me, God feels a little abstract. Every now and then, for me, God seems a little distant. And if I ever feel that way, I just simply take a deep, deep breath. And that's at the heart of all the spirit language, that God's spirit is literally our breath. In the words of saints and, angel, saints and mystics, I haven't talked to angels. In the words of saints and mystics, that God is closer to us than we are to ourselves. And that's that spirit that we can literally feel. One of my favorite poets is Mary Oliver, God rest her soul. I don't know if she was an Episcopalian, but she certainly spent a lot of time in Episcopal churches because her poetry often alludes to 
uh, Episcopal language and ritual. And she has a great poem that I think is fitting on Trinity Sunday that I put in your insert. You can refer to it later. It's a poem, it's about angels, but I think of it as a perfect poem for Trinity Sunday as we try to view this language in the most imaginative way. These are not ideas, but language that tries to capture something of the stories that we tell and ultimately of the ways in which we have not thought about God, but actually experienced God. The world I live in, I've refused to live locked in the orderly house of reasons and proofs. The world I live in and believe in is wider than that. And anyway, what's wrong with maybe? You wouldn't believe what once or twice I've seen. I'll just tell you this. Only if there are angels in your head will you ever possibly see one. <laughs>